Good morning, everyone. I am so thankful to start the Lord's Day with the Psalms. I, I didn't know how I was going to get over um, not doing BTI anymore because I did that for 10 years. Uh, the Psalms did it, though, so I'm, I'm really thankful. I, I don't know a better way to start the Lord's Day. So we're going to be in Psalm 10 today. I feel like we're running out of time. We only have 140 left, but uh, we're going to do Psalm 10. It's a, it's a little bit long. It's 18 verses, but I think it's worth our time to read it. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll read the whole psalm, and then walk our way through it. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Our world is a difficult place to live, and yet you give us the Lord's Day every week to leave the things of the world behind, to open our Bibles, to be with your people, to sing the glorious songs of our faith to be reminded of the cross of Christ, all these glorious spiritual heavenly riches that we enjoy. And so I pray that you would begin our time in this day, in this psalm, looking at what it means to live in a world that's hostile and yet to live with hope. And I pray that you would thrill our hearts with these truths this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 10 begins, Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says in his heart, I will not be shaken. From generation to generation, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the places of the villages where one lies in wait. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lies in wait in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lies in wait to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said in his heart, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been a helper to the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed, to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. I don't know if you caught this here, but there's a contrast. And we get the same contrast in other parts of Scripture. Peter gives this contrast. He's writing to the dispersed Jewish Christians in 1 Peter, and he calls them sojourners and exiles. 
that they live in this world, but we don't belong to this world. And he makes that comparison, that contrast. The Apostle John gives the same classic description of this living in the world, but we don't belong to it. He says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this is exactly what Psalm 10 presents. It presents the fact that we live in two worlds simultaneously. We live in the world of hostility and we live in the world of hope. And they both happen right at the same time. Hostility and hope. And where Psalm 10 really is so useful to us is Psalm 10 is here to help you navigate living in both worlds at the same time. How do you live in the world of hostility and yet have hope? And it also, by the way, just as a side bonus for younger people, Psalm 10 forms your worldview. It helps you understand how to view the world and how not to be sucked in by cultural interpretations of so-called truth. So Psalm 10, as we mentioned last time, it just picks up where Psalm 9 left off. Both contain similar vocabulary. Both contain an incomplete acrostic, uh, an alphabetical acrostic. Psalm 10 just picks up where Psalm 9 uh, leaves off. You wouldn't know that if you didn't know the Hebrew alphabet, but it does just pick right up where Psalm 9 leaves off. They're both on similar ideas. Psalm 9 about vindication, Psalm 10 more about protection and understanding how to live in these two worlds, but they're very related. And so by the Holy Spirit, David gives us insight into this contrast, this dichotomy, this paradox, the contradiction of living in a world of hostility while maintaining hope at the same time. So I want to walk through Psalm 10 and we'll just look at both those worlds. First the world of hostility, then the world of hope. And then I want to point out two important lessons which I believe we can draw from Psalm 10. So the first 11 verses highlight the world of hostility. David begins this psalm with a double question, which is a very negative question. In light of the hostility all around him, in verse 1, Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? This is a purely emotional reaction to living in a wicked world. David feels emotionally as if God isn't anywhere to be seen. It seems that David is far away and probably worse is apathetic. And you catch this? He pictures God as hiding it's not just that he can't find God. It's, just, it's that God is trying not to be found. That It's as if God is, wherever David wants God to be, God hides somewhere else. And he hides, it seems to David, when there's the most need in times of distress. Now, why does it feel to David that God is aloof, that he's apathetic, that he's hiding? Well, there are two basic themes of hostility in these first 11 verses and I'll divide it this way, the hostility of passionate persecution, first of all, and secondly, the hostility of self-important success. So passionate persecution and self-important success. And really, you could just go to any news source and read today's news and you go, oh, that's verses 2 through 11. So this will not be unfamiliar to you. The hostility of passionate persecution. Verse 2, in his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. The, the word hotly here actually means to burn with desire to pursue something. And so this is a, a very accurate depiction. The unrighteous have a burning desire, a, a yearning to pursue 
the righteous person and to afflict them. Now, you've experienced this to one degree or another, maybe not as much as others, but either personally you've experienced this or generally you've experienced being lumped in with the church of Jesus Christ. In our culture, the church today is a joke. The church today is to be mocked. You, you read the news and we're just, uh, we're just a cartoon. The world is not content to ignore Christians. For many in the world, there's a genuine hatred, a genuine loathing of everything we stand for. Christians have been killed for their faith in every generation. That's not somehow an ancient thing. We have evidence that there are more Christians being killed for their faith today than we're in the first century. It's not that persecution is somehow something in the past. The, the wicked are children of Satan who hate the children of God. And based on this, David squeezes in here a quick imprecatory prayer. The second half of verse 2. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they have devised. Let them be caught in those thoughts. Caught red-handed in their wicked thoughts. And in fact, the pursuit the passionate pursuit and the harm of God's people. This is the heart's cry of the wicked. This is what's in their heart. Verse 3, For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. Then not only do the wicked renounce any idea of worshiping God in order to pursue worldly gain, they're cursing God, they're boasting of their hatred of true believers. Now, you might say, or a Christian might, a non-Christian rather, might say, I don't hate Christians, I just don't want to be one. A non-Christian might assert his neutrality. That I, I'm just neutral, I, I like Christians, I, I, my next door neighbor's a Christian, he's a nice guy, he mows my lawn when I'm gone, and, and they're nice people. That's what's on the surface though, and you cannot judge a person by what you see, you have to judge according to scripture. Jesus said that if you're not with him, you're what? You're against him. And if you're against him, you're also against his people. And ultimately, you cannot trust unbelievers to not turn against you when the heat gets turned up, when push comes to shove. And we saw this during COVID. Now we all have this experience. So many compassionate and supposedly Christian-friendly authorities suddenly brought out the fangs, the claws, the police, lawsuits, imprisonment, when it came time to choose how to treat Christians, they abandoned you. You cannot count on unbelievers to somehow defend the cause of Christ. That will not happen. Here's the passionate persecution of the world. Skip down to verse 8. This is where their hearts really are. He sits in the places of the villages where one lies in wait. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. This is somebody who might hide behind a false morality. He's, he's hiding. False morals like reproductive rights or colonization or tolerance. This is a false morality that you hide behind in order to cause harm, in order to, to kill, to destroy lives. I, honestly, I can't believe that the United States of America is still even on the map, given the fact that we've murdered more innocent people than any uh, culture in human history. So why are we still here? That's just God's grace. But we are very clearly under the judgment of God because those who are hiding stealthily aren't stealth, stealth, stealthy anymore. They're in charge. Our very government are the ones that uh, are murdering people. And the world goes after the most vulnerable. The baby in the womb, the, the little child with wicked parents or wicked teachers 
trying to make him emotionally happy by convincing him that he's a her or her that she's a him. Actually, the ones who were supposedly radically against child sexual abuse are actually the ones trying to make it legal now. And so they're coming out of hiding. Verse 8 pictures them hiding. Uh, Now they're coming out. They don't have to hide as much anymore. And who's behind this? Why is this persecution so passionate? Well, it's passionate because it originates in the dark mind of Satan himself. Verse 9, he lies in wait in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lies in wait to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. The Apostle Peter drew on this exact imagery, probably thinking of Psalm 10, to describe the work of Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And now David pictures the, the powerful in the world, the, the worldly wicked, as manipulating their followers, manipulating their, their minions to do their bidding and to take their wicked cause for them. In verse 10, he crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. Who are the mighty ones? The mighty ones are those who get sucked into a, a false world religion or a false ideology, and they, they desperately want to please those that they perceive as in charge, and so they'll do the bidding of the wicked. Young people following wicked leadership with a false morality. They're, they're consumed with pleasing those that they deem their leaders. Those that have set themselves up at the stand, as the standard. And they become pawns. The men who grew up as little boys on the farms of uh, Bavaria and Germany became the men who turned the valves on the gas chambers to kill millions of Jews. Why did they do that? Because of a desperate desire to please those they believed held the true ideology. And you think, how can an 18, 19, 20-year-old kill hundreds of thousands of people personally? Because he becomes mighty. He has a sense of, this ideology has made me powerful. And he becomes one of the mighty ones. And he drinks in the poison of power. Why is this passionate persecution so boldly pursued well it's boldly pursued because the wicked are deceived into thinking that they'll never be held accountable they'll never be held to account verse 11 he says in his heart god is forgotten he has hidden his face he will never see it you know it's ironic i'm going back to nazi germany germany is where the great reformation started That's where the gospel was reclaimed and the irony to to go a few hundred years in the future and it becomes the seed of evil uh, under the Nazis, a place where uh, to this day still represents the very worst of humanity when humanity turns against what God has taught. And, And I hate to break this to you, but this sort of passionate persecution by the wicked, this won't be stopped by legislation. It won't be stopped by new laws. It won't be stopped by an election. It won't be stopped, listen carefully, it won't be stopped by trying to influence unbelievers to act like Christians. Remember, you can't do that. They, they might do something moral because people aren't as bad as they always could be, but they won't ultimately choose to do what is right because they're honoring Christ. They'll choose to do what is right because they have some sort of moral compulsion or it's good for them politically. That's generally where it's going to be. 
about the most we see in Scripture concerning trying to stop persecution is to move. Did you know that? Matthew 10, 23, Jesus said that whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. That's really about all we can do. He promises in the verse prior, you will be hated by all because of my name. That's the hostility of passionate persecution. But we're not out of the woods yet. There's another type of hostility, the hostility of self-important success. And this is the one that that really begins to eat at us. Verse 4 The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Let me just make two observations. First of all, what is it that keeps people from seeking God? Haughtiness of his countenance. Countenance is a a word for your face. This is a picture of of a wicked person having his head held high in self-pride, looking at God. What do we do when we pray? Automatically, we bow our heads. This is somebody who refuses to bow, who would look God in the eye as an equal. The second observation, he's arrogant in that he believes there is no God, and since he believes it, it must be true. This is a great point you can make with the unbeliever that you're trying to share the gospel with. They say, well, I believe that everyone goes to heaven. Or I believe that everyone just ceases to exist at their death. The great question is, what do you base that belief on? Other than just your opinion. And it's a reasonable question to ask, if the only reason you believe this is because it's you saying it, isn't that kind of arrogant? Isn't that kind of prideful? Something you literally have no evidence of? You've never been beyond the grave. You've never been past death. And yet, Because you say it's true, it must be true. That's the height of arrogance, isn't it? And here's what really hurts. This is what is difficult for us to swallow. The self-important are very often successful from the worldly standpoint. Verse 5, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. As for all His adversaries, He snorts at them. Everything He touches turns to gold. Uh, confirming in his mind his own self-importance. Why why do, uh, I I looked this up, why do senators of the United States, uh, all of them make less than $200,000 a year, why do they all own multiple million-dollar homes? Why is that? Because everything they touch turns to gold because people are giving them gold, right? And it's frustrating to us to see wicked people who are supposedly public servants, just everything they touch comes their direction and, and, and helps them. And, and what do they say in their hearts? In verse 5, the judgments and the statutes of God are out of his sight, out of his range. He doesn't care. He's not thinking about that. And he's successfully fought and won in this world that he arrogantly snorts at his enemies. He snorts at them. And because of his success in this world, because of overcoming his adversaries, he, be, he believes the lie of his own legend, right? We're, we're called to pray for our leaders, and, and we should do that from 1 Timothy 2. It doesn't mean that we don't call out wickedness when we see it. And our, our president, God bless him, is not an intelligent man. He's not, a, he's not a good man in any stretch, and yet he's managed to remain in public office for 50 years. And... Because of that, 
He genuinely, I believe, believes he is the answer to all the ills of mankind simply because he has crushed his adversaries for so long. This is exactly what Psalm Psalm 10 predicts. He believes the lie of his own legend. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I will not be shaken from generation to generation. I will not be in adversity. To, because we have to deal with our, our leaders in the government and we're, we're just completely uh, at their mercy, it's reasonable to analyze this. We have a test called uh, the popularity test or approval rating and that sort of thing. If I, as a pastor, sent out a little survey and only 30% of our church thought I should be the pastor here, that's bad. When the politician gets that level, they just ignore it. Why? Because they believe the lie of their own legend. They believe, well, all these people are idiots. They don't understand that I'm actually the answer to their problems. He's believed himself. They believe that they're so important that they see themselves as building a dynasty, a, a family legacy. They believe that they have this inherent right to this privilege, and so they don't care how they get there. They steal, they murder, they cheat, they lie because they believe in their self-importance and their apparent success sort of confirms that to them and to many around him. But here's his real heart. Verse 7. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Just under the surface, the real wickedness is apparent. I know this is obvious to most, if not all of you, but I have to be reminded of Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is desperately wicked. It is deceitful. It's sick. I'm reminded of Romans 3, 10. There is none righteous, not even one. We hold to, here at Grace, the anthropological doctrine of total depravity, not partial depravity. Total depravity says that sin has so taken hold of humanity that there is not a single part of us that can seek after God that can come to the conclusion objectively that we have a sin problem and we need a Savior. Now, the unbeliever is, verse 7, his mouth is full of curses, deceit, and oppression. That doesn't mean that every person acts as bad as they could, but it does mean that they are unable to seek God on their own. Now, if that's all that Psalm 10 said, we would say quickly, let's get to Psalm 11, because that's the world of hostility. But David presents the other world. The two worlds we live in, not only the world of hostility, but he presents the world of hope. And now beginning in verse 12, we get a whole different perspective. It's night and day. One that looks at the world with heavenly eyes. And so as you look at the map of the world through heavenly eyes, so to speak, you could look at perspectives or avenues of hope. And I want to give you four of them. I I started with nine or ten, but I don't have time for that. We'll do four avenues of hope. The first avenue is hope through prayer. Hope through prayer. And this may seem obvious, but as we've gone through verses 1 through 11, it's depressing, it's downcasting upon your soul. And then you remember, oh, I can simply get on my knees and go to the God who is the solution to all of this. He's ever with me. All I need to do is pray. And that's precisely what David models here in verse 12. Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. And I want you to know this. This is theologically the opposite of verse 1. In verse 1, God is apathetic. He's distant. He's hiding. But David prays to a God who is not apathetic, 
who is close by and who is right in the thick of world history. By the way, I think it's important to note also that prayer is the means by which God will judge the wicked. That's the means. He's ordained this judgment all the way from eternity past, but your prayers are the mechanism by which God will judge the world. If you, if you could put it this way, why will God judge the world? Because you prayed for that. That's why. That's the mechanism. It's the means. And so there's hope through prayer. The second avenue, hope through comparison. Hope through comparison. Instead of seeming to be swallowed up with the prosperity of a, a, of a wicked world, the believer begins to make an objective comparison. And this is, this is our duty to do this. It's almost like David now steps out of life. It's like he steps off of the revolving world and, and just takes a moment to observe. And what he observes is a comparison between two different perspectives. First, there's the perspective of the lost person. Their perspective concerning God is found in verse 13. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said in his heart, you will not require it. Now, having sort of stepped off the world for a moment just to ask this question, David just asks, this makes no sense. Why would the wicked spurn God? Don't you know who God is? Don't you know how lovely he is? How loving, how kind, how gracious, how powerful, how wrathful? Why would you dare? Why would you even think about that? The wicked person is determined in his heart that God will make no requirements and so he gives a faulty assessment. He spurns God. It's a Hebrew word that means to treat disrespectfully. We would say to thumb your nose at God. And I think it's at this point that we can start to have pity and sorrow on the lost person. That they might be successful now. But you think about somebody in his 70s or 80s or 90s who continues to spurn God. They're literally a heartbeat away from an eternal fate that is the most horrific thing Ever. But then there's the other perspective, the perspective of the saved person. Verse 14, you have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. We take comfort in the fact that God will make requirements. That we want to see justice happen now, but he will bring justice. And I think this is important. We are meant to take comfort from the coming vindication of God. We're meant to take comfort from this. It is, I, I would call it a false righteousness to present yourself as somehow more compassionate than God. That, well, it's a, I, I don't want to think about the fact that the lost will be judged by God. Actually, we're commanded to pray that the lost are judged by God. We're also commanded that the, pray, that the lost are saved by God. How he divides those is his business. But we're commanded to pray both ways. The holiness of God demands vindication. And if we as Christians are not enthusiastic about the vindication of God, then that means actually we're not enthusiastic about the holiness of God. We don't think holiness is that big of a deal. But our perspective is, is that we know God. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You've been the helper of the, the orphan. God commits himself to the helpless, to the weakest of society. I just want to point out here, you realize that in verses 13 and 14, by the help of the illumination of the Holy Spirit, 
you have the heavenly perspective. You have truth that no unbeliever can have. You know the heart of the unbeliever. You know the heart of the believer. You have them both down. You have pity on the unbeliever for their ignorance and their wickedness. And you rejoice that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And that's a great question in verse 13. Why is the wicked spurn God? We would put it this way. Why on earth would you not want to be a Christian? Why would you not want to follow Christ? Why would you not want to take one minute to bend the knee to repent of your sin so that you could spend eternity with Christ? It's a, it's a reasonable question. There's a third avenue of hope. Hope through justice. Hope through justice. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. One of the values of going straight through the Psalms, are are you already seeing how frequently the theme of justice comes up? So far, it's been in uh, Psalms 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. The theme of justice is everywhere. Every Psalm so far. And again, David offers this imprecatory prayer against the unrepentant, recalcitrant, wicked. He says, break the arm. In the Bible, the arm is often symbolic of a person's power. Uh, The arm of the Lord has revealed it in in Isaiah 53. He says, break the power of the, the wicked. I like the ESV at the end of verse 15. The ESV says, call his wickedness to account till you find none. What does this mean? This is a call from David to hold the wicked accountable for every single sinful thought, every single sinful word, every single sinful deed. And that's exactly what will happen. Revelation 20 says the books will be opened. By the way, this is the incredible nature of the cross of Christ. Can you imagine every one of your sins being listed, explained, the context given exposed before God, that would take years, wouldn't it? It would take as long to explain your sin than it took you to commit them, maybe longer. That's what Jesus took on your behalf. He took the list. He was called to account. The wrath of God was emptied on Christ until all of your sins, every single one of them, were accounted for. And somehow in the, in the mystery of God, that was compacted into three hours on the cross. I don't know how that's possible, But when it comes to the world we live in, you are meant to have that perspective that you are to pray for God to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, to seek out his wickedness until you find none. So we have hope through prayer, through compassion, through justice. I'll give you one more. The fourth avenue of hope, hope through eternity. Hope through eternity. Verse 16 Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. So now David does as he's in the habit of doing and he he begins to look far beyond this life. He looks beyond death. He looks into eternity and he makes two simple affirmations. Yahweh is king forever and ever. And the second affirmation, wicked nations will eventually be completely defeated. And I think this is a good point to make an observation something that the american church is not very good at it's not something we're raised to do because we're generally raised pretty informally in the church but this is valuable this is simply the act of affirming what is true of saying what is true of praying what is true of singing what is true that in and of itself is valuable can you see by the way when church becomes something that's about 
feeding my emotions that now we've stopped affirming what is true and we've started simply feeding an emotional feeling. But there's such value this to this. I read one commentator that made the observation that because we have cherry-picked from the Psalms the parts that we like, and then we sing those parts or we base sermons on those parts, um, we have robbed ourselves of the fact that worship is not just praise and adoration of God. Worship is also imprecatory prayer. Worship is confession of sin. Worship is expression of my own hopelessness until I come to the point of hope in the Lord. And so our worship is, is broad in scope. And that includes our eschatology. Yahweh is king forever and ever. I, I was talking to a guy a couple months ago uh, in relation to the Influencers Conference and, and I, I just asked him, you know, what, what's your view of eternity? Oh, Jesus is going to come and make everything all right. Well, what else do you know about that? Well, that's all I need to know. The Bible doesn't say that. If that's all you need to know, then that's what the Bible would say. Jesus is coming and everything will be all right, period. David moves into eternity, and I wish I had time to really go into verse 16 because this is, I hate to bring it up, premillennial theology that Yahweh is king forever, nations will perish. That's premillennialism. That is the fact that David's hope is that a king is on his way and he affirms this hope. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, right after explaining what happens in the end times, he says, encourage one another or comfort one another with these words. That's where we find our hope. Two worlds at the same time, hostility and hope. And now David closes the psalm with this high note of hope that the world of hope will defeat the world of hostility Verse 17, O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed, to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. What an ending. Man who is of the earth, the powerful, the hostile, the arrogant, the one who prospers, will no longer cause terror. I think Psalm 10 is a good psalm to read every election night. That no matter what happens, that man can't cause terror. I want to just look at two lessons to glean from this. And I, I think, I'm being conservative saying this, but these are the most important two. These are theological themes that run through Psalm 10. And I want to just point both of these out. The first lesson or the theological theme, God is fully aware of and he's taking care of the least. He's taking care of the weakest. And why is this important? This is important because verse 1 presents what uh, theologians call theodicy, the problem of evil. Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? This is a classic theological problem that basically says this. If God is perfectly good, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-knowing, why is there evil in the world? Why is it here? And that's the same question that David asks. But the psalm doesn't directly answer the question. 
It doesn't say, I'm going to give you the answer. And by the way, the so-called problem of evil, I always say so-called because it's only a problem for us. It's not a problem to God. God ordained evil. He did not cause it. He ordained evil for his own purposes so that he could glorify things like his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his wrath, all of those things. But how do we know in this psalm that God is fully aware of, fully taking care of the least and the weakest? He demonstrates his awareness with all the words he uses to describe the defenseless. He calls them the afflicted, verse 2 and verse 9, the innocent, verse 8, the unfortunate in verse 8, the humble in verse 17, the orphan, verses 14 and 18, the oppressed in verse 18. All those words being there tells us God understands this. We don't need to remind God, but what about all these people in the world that seem to be suffering needlessly? It's not our concern. It's another theological lesson, another observation. Did you notice something about the relationship between God and man? I'll read eight verses to you and then let's see if we can get the observation. Verse two, his thoughts, the thoughts devised by the wicked are known to God. Verse four, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Verse six, he says in his heart, I will not be shaken. Verse seven, under his tongue, meaning in his mind, is mischief and wickedness. Verse eight, God knows where the wicked hide in secret against the righteous. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. Verse 13, he has said in his heart, you will not require it. Verse 14, God sees their vexation, their anger, the internal state of their heart. The point is, eight times, David affirms that God sees all the way into the heart of the wicked. He doesn't have to guess. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. What does this tell us about verse 1 then? Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? It tells us that David, in verse 1, expresses how he feels, but the rest of the psalm, he goes to his theology proper, the omniscient knowledge of God, and he affirms eight times that God will not be fooled. He won't be fooled, even by the person who thinks he's going to get away with it. And in the same token, the same holds true of God's compassion on the afflicted. Verse 17. O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. He didn't say, you've heard their prayers. Yes, he hears their prayers. That's obvious. We know that. But it goes deeper than that. Yahweh has heard the desire. He's heard the pain. He's heard the questions. He's heard the yearning. He's heard the the nonverbal hurt. He's heard this. God knows he hears the deepest heart cry of those who belong to him. God knows your desire for relief. He knows your desire for help. He knows what hurts you to the core of your being. He knows your pains. God knows your doubts. He knows the helplessness that you sometimes feel. Yes, he knows the sin that seems to beset you so easily. He knows everything. And whether you pray or not, he's already responding to those desires. That's That's a phenomenal thought. That there is a day coming when the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror or will strike terror no more, as the ESV says. 
I've had people write me emails and sometimes sit in my office who just get so depressed living in a difficult world, get depressed living in a difficult life. All they see is the hostility. You have to use Psalm 10 to say no. You see the hostility. Your worldview is accurate, but you have to put the other lens on and that's the view of hope. And the two go together. And one of those is going away. And if you don't know which one after this time, then I don't know what to say to you. But the world of hostility, the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. The only way to live peacefully in the world of hostility is to view it through the world of hope. And the hope is sure in Christ and in Christ alone. And, and why do we gather together? Because we get one day a week where we focus on the world of hope, right? Tomorrow morning, the world of hostility comes flooding back and we remember what we learned today. I want to encourage you with one more little story. In Isaiah, God paints this picture of all the most powerful emperors and kings and rulers of the world, men who conquered nations, men who literally ruled the known world for a time. And the picture he paints is of each of them dying and joining their predecessors and their predecessors mocking them and saying, ha, you're just like us now. You're nothing. You're the worm is eating your body just like it is mine. That's where they all end up. That's where they all end up. And someday, the Bible says that in the new Jerusalem, the gates will be opened except to those who are the wicked. And you'll never see them again. So we have the view of hostility. We have the view of hope. That is your worldview. You take both together and eventually the Lord will get rid of the world of hostility. And now there's not hope because hope does not disappoint us in Scripture. Hope becomes reality, right? That's what biblical hope is. I hope that that helps you live peacefully in this hostile world. Our Father, we thank you for beginning our time, our devotional time here, Lord, in Psalm 10. David, I I really think uh, by your Spirit's work accurately represents the, the struggle that we have. That we do look at the world around us, the difficulties, the 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 sin, even just the fact that the world seems to be decaying all around us. That our the very things we own break and they they decay and and everything around us goes bad. That every little town that becomes a city, crime goes up. Murders happen. And we look all around and wonder, when will Christ return? But Psalm 10 helps us to look objectively and to see with pity and sorrow the heart of the lost is desperately wicked. They have believed that there is no God who will hold them to account. And by the same token, we are thankful to you that you have held Christ to account for our sins and that someday the world of hope will be all that remains and hope will become reality. Lord, I pray for each person hearing this, that whatever part of this hostile world is most painful and difficult to them, that the hope we receive from Psalm 10 would carry them forward another day, another week, another month, another year, until such time as we are face to face with you and the hostility is gone. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.